coming up on the premiere edition of the KGNU Science Show. The shocking truth about electric and magnetic fields. 1991, a look back at the year in science. Snow Eaters, an explanation of Chinook winds. And a contest, name this show. All that plus the science news, so stay tuned. Welcome to the pilot episode of KGNU's new science show. This show wants to bring you a fresh look at the world of science. We'll explain how everyday things work. We'll tell you about the latest developments out on the cutting edge of science. And we'll try to do it all in a plain, spoken, and engaging way. So if you're a PhD, a high school biology dropout, or somewhere in between, we think this show offers something for you. And if you've wondered what goes on in all these labs around town, We'll bring on researchers to fill you in. We want to emphasize the vital and varied work happening right here in the Boulder, Denver area. Webster's defines science as the state of knowing, knowledge as distinguished from ignorance or misunderstanding. We want you to know. Here's a look at the recent news in science. A growing number of researchers now believe that for many of those with hypertension, restricting salt has little or no effect. Recent studies suggest that for some people it is not too much salt, but too little calcium that sets the stage for hypertension. Researchers say people have been interested in the salt question for 50 years and there's still no compelling evidence one way or another. There's a problem when research focuses on sodium without looking at other ions in the diet, like calcium and potassium. Researcher Dr. Thomas Ferris said, quote, There is no evidence that salt can cause hypertension in people with normal blood pressure. Taking salt out of baby food is just silly, and it bugs me that I sometimes can't get salted pretzels because of this irrational fear. Although still controversial, this calcium connection has already led some specialists to advise patients that they may eat pretzels at least in moderation as long as they also drink their milk. The long search for planets beyond our solar system may finally have succeeded. Everyone thinks this is the real thing, says University of California astronomer Dr. Frank Drake. After over 18 months of observations, Dr. Alexander Woltzon and Dr. Dale Frail report finding three Earth-sized planets orbiting a neutron star 1,300 light-years from Earth. The star, a pulsar, spins on its axis 162 times a second. The existence of the planets was inferred from changes in the star's rotation rate. The finding is important because it advances the understanding of planet formation, and it's a step toward finding life in space. Science Magazine has chosen its Molecule of the Year for 1991, Buckminster Fullerene. It's named after American architect R. Buckminster Fuller, whose geodesic dome has the same fundamental shape as the molecule. The molecule, or buckyballs, are the roundest, most symmetrical large molecules yet discovered. They're also the third major form of carbon after graphite and diamond. 
Why are chemists so excited about buckyballs? They're calling them the most chemically versatile molecule known, and research papers are hitting the top journals almost weekly. Because the buckyball is hollow, it may provide chemists with a long sought after chemical courier service. They hope to be able to stuff the buckyballs with different atoms or ions and deliver them through tissue or other materials. The buckyballs would shield their contents from radioactivity or other hazards along the way. They might even serve as microscopic drug traffickers, delivering drugs where needed in the human body. Buckyballs also act as veritable sponges for what chemists call free radicals. These are fragments of molecules that easily attach to other molecules. That can be a nuisance in many chemical reactions, so it might be handy to have a buckyball sponge around to control these pesky free radicals, which are actually very important for the economical synthesis of various polymers. Buckyballs, and their cousins, the fullerenes, might also be chemical catalysts. That's a molecule that helps speed up chemical reactions. Are you impressed yet? Well, buckyballs also show potential as super strong materials, optical switches, and even superconductors, although they can't yet compete with the traditional candidates for superconducting, known as high-temperature superconductors. Of course all of this sounds great, but perhaps you're asking, is it safe? Well, it's organic. Actually, many potentially useful organic compounds can be dangerous because they incorporate themselves into DNA, causing cancer. However, Science Magazine says that carcinogenicity tests are ongoing, and so far, Buckyballs looks like one of the safer games in town. Buckminster Fullerene, it's a courier service. A sponge. A catalyst. An optical switch. A superconductor. It's strong and it may be safe. Buckminster Fullerene, found only in your finer chemistry laboratories. Right now, Boulder is buried under snow, but imagine waking up tomorrow morning with the temperature 50 degrees warmer than when you went to bed. The wind is blowing 100 miles per hour, and you no longer have to worry about shoveling the walk that you didn't shovel yesterday. No, this isn't science fiction. It's a Chinook wind. The Indians called them snow eaters and likened them to the warmth from spirits of the dead coming down off of the mountains. But what is the scientific phenomenon lying behind these winds? David Atkins reports. Chinooks are warm, dry winds that blow down from the mountains into places like Boulder. The temperature of the winds can be up to 50 degrees Fahrenheit above the surrounding air temperature and can reach speeds of 100 miles per hour or higher. These winds are by no means confined to the Denver-Boulder area. In Southern California, they're called Santa Anas. In Sri Lanka, the Kotschan. And in South Africa, the Berg wind. The mystery is how a warm wind could come down from a cold mountain. After all, warm air should rise. As the winds descend from the mountains, they enter an area of higher atmospheric pressure near the ground. Consequently, the air in these winds is compressed while giving up very little heat to the surrounding atmosphere. This phenomenon is called adiabatic compression, and it results in the warming of the wind as it descends from the mountain. Pumping up a bicycle tire also involves adiabatic compression. As the pump compresses the air in the cylinder, 
the internal energy or temperature of the air increases. Very little heat is given off to the surrounding atmosphere, and hence the process is called adiabatic. You can feel how much warmer the air in the cylinder is since the pump valve gets hot. So now we know why Chinooks are warm, but why are they so dry? The prevailing winds in the United States are from the west. As the winds are forced upward by the mountains, they enter an area of low atmospheric pressure. The air then adiabatically cools. Since cool air cannot hold as much moisture as warm air, precipitation occurs. Consequently, the western slope of the mountains receives the majority of the precipitation, leaving dry air to descend the east slope of the mountains and form a Chinook. So next time the west wind howls, rejoice, as it could make Boulder as warm as Bermuda. Are you overwhelmed by the pace of scientific advancements, finding it difficult to keep up with all the new science journal articles each month, lacking in clever, interesting science snippets for those cocktail parties? Well, in an effort to help you condense all the science out there into the most important work, we bring you Dr. John Bruce Davies with a critical look at the year in science for 1991. In the world of anthropology in 1991, excavations at a 3,500-year-old Peruvian site considered one of the earliest major settlements in the New World, suggested that residents rejected grain cultivation in favor of growing cotton. In the world of behavioral sciences, the study of people with severe depression indicated that those who respond to antidepressant medication should be kept on high doses of the drugs for at least three years. I'm sure the pharmaceutical companies will love that result. New experimental data hinted at the existence of a heavy neutrino, so far, we haven't seen a light one yet. Also, for the first time, researchers achieved the fusion of deuterium and tritium nuclei in a magnetically confined plasma. However, it still took more energy than we got back. There is no free lunch in this cosmos. With respect to science and society in 1991, the president's fiscal year 1992 budget requested a hefty 8.4 billion rise in R&D spending. However, defense activities were slated to get about double the increase requested for civilian activities. Is this the peace dividend? President Bush's national energy strategy legislation, which kicked off a year-long debate on how to wean the United States from dependence on foreign oil, stalled over two major conflicts, oil drilling in an Alaskan wilderness and auto efficiency standards. The House Science, Space, and Technology Committee created a new task force to focus on the health of U.S. research, especially in light of new questions about big versus small science projects. Such questions nearly killed funding for one of the largest big science enterprises, the $40 billion space station. I'd just like to remind everyone that Einstein was a small scientist. Though anti-smoking campaigns appear to be helping, a survey showed that one in three women of childbearing age in the United States continues to smoke. Several studies showed that cigarette advertisements exert powerful psychological influences on children and teenagers, possibly encouraging young people to start smoking. I didn't start till I was 24. In space science in 1991, the Jupiter-bound Galileo spacecraft radioed back to Earth the first close-up images ever taken of an asteroid 
an object called 951 Gaspra. It looked like a potato. Comet Haley, normally dim and quiescent as it recedes from the sun, suddenly spotted a new shroud of dust and underwent a major jump in luminosity. Maybe its way of saying goodbye. With respect to Hubble, that problem-plagued telescope, for failing gyroscopes, unwanted vibrations, a faulty spectrograph with some of the problems. Nonetheless, Hubble captured the sharpest images of Mars ever taken, as well as a photo depicting the clouds in Jupiter's turbulent atmosphere. To quote Shakespeare, Hubble, bubble, toil and trouble. So that's about it for 1991. We'll be back next week with more 1992 news. If you live near high-tension power lines, you've probably wondered about the effects of all that electricity so close to home. In a moment, we'll talk with University of Colorado professor Frank Barnes about the possible effects of electric and magnetic fields. But first, we'll hear from a Minnesota farmer who says cows get sick when there's too much electricity around. When their cow's milk production drops and they can't figure out why, dairy farmers throughout Minnesota and Wisconsin turn to Al Balgard, Using simple instruments and a basic knowledge of electricity, Balgard corrects wiring problems in their barns, and that seems to do the trick. The cow's milk production and overall health improves. It's not exactly foolproof research, but a lot of Midwest dairy farmers are convinced electric fields harm their cows. Sam Fuqua spoke by phone with Al Balgard, who was at his home in Corcoran, Minnesota. You get a lot of different problems from it. Uh, basically, uh, magnetic fields for uh, Norton uh, farming trace street voltage is a stress disease because it lowers the immunity of the animal. Therefore, it uh, becomes an infliction. And are we talking about fields from high tension wires or from uh, current within the uh, barns? Well, the sources are so many and varied. Uh, that uh, it gets to be a, quite a problem. Like one project I'm working on right now uh, up in central part of the state, uh, if we turn off the power on the farm, it, uh, the problem is still there. So we're having quite a time trying to uh, trace that one down. I'm working with the power, local power company there with the engineer, and uh, I haven't been up to see what progress is. But uh, what happens there is that even with the power turned off, you watch the animals, and first thing you know, you'll see tail switching, and then they get nervous and start uh, dancing because it's bothering them right through the feet and everything. And, and their milk production suffers? Oh, yes. Uh, he had five days. Last time I was up there, we went out with the engineer, and he'd put some equipment out for five days. And in those five days, there were, wasn't really any big basic problem. In those five days, without having any cows fresh or uh, dried off, you know, so the numbers were even, he had gained five pounds per cow per day. Can you tell me a couple more of your success stories? Well, I just uh, got a report on one uh, that uh, is just uh, west of me here, about uh, 25 miles. When I went out there, the power company had been there, but they had, couldn't find anything. Well, what I traced it down to, he had underground service and he had a bad wire in there and uh, what had happened they had at one time replaced one of the wires but they hadn't taken the old one out or disconnected it 
Then we also found one going to the garage that was bad. When we relieved the problem there, uh, he then went into the next problem because the cows melted out so fast that it flooded the milk line and thereby inflicting the cows. So we then had to fix the milk machine. Uh, when I started there last spring, uh, his cell count, which is quality, was just under uh, a million uh, uh, cell count. The, and the cell count, you're talking about the... Uh, the the white r- cells that shed down, you see. And that... that, that for, we find that for every 300,000 cell count, uh, you lose one pound of cheese and 100 pounds of milk. And so with these bad wires uh, in his barn, that was lowering the cell count? No, it was raising it. Oh, raising it, I see. Yeah. Uh, both the husband and wife worked in the barn, and before they got through with milking, their arms would go dead. They had spent about a thousand dollars on stepped-on teats, because this is one thing the cow gets clumsy and what have you. His butter fat was at two point nine. Uh, now, so for those of us who don't know, is that low? That's low. He had some cows as low as one point five. What is a normal butter fat? Normal butter fat, you're looking at probably, well, you're grading it at three and a half, but in a, in a Holstein herd, you're probably looking at right around four. There are some that run higher, but I would say the medium there would probably be about 4% butter fat. Okay, so low butter fat and high white cells, and then what happened when you... Uh when you took care of the... Well, the uh, due to the quality of the milk uh, with the high cell count, he was paying uh, $150 a month penalty for poor quality. Uh, and his milking time was 2 hours and 45 minutes because they don't like to let the milk down. Right. We turned that around. The cell count, uh, last report, was 57,000 which gives him a premium of 30 cents a hundred. His butter fat had gone up to 3.85, and his milking time was an hour 25 minutes. And all this because you found uh, the bad wires and, yep. and, correct? So... Not only that, his neighbor wanted me to check out his place, and so when I got there, well, he says, I still want you to check it out, I'll still pay you, but I think I, you cured my problem when you found that problem at my neighbor. Farmers in America's Dairyland aren't the only ones concerned about the health effects of electric and magnetic fields. Jeff Ory spoke with CU professor Frank Barnes. The folks living on Grape Street here in Boulder may be especially interested in our guest today, who is here to help us better understand how the electric and magnetic fields like those produced from the huge power lines strung along Grape Street could possibly affect biological tissue. Our guest is Professor Frank Barnes from the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Colorado here in Boulder. Welcome, Professor Barnes. Hello. Glad to be here. Now, modern societies have been living among many sources of electricity for decades now, yet only recently have people begun to express concern over their effects for living creatures. In the past, it seems that the electric fields around us have been assumed to be safe. How come it's taken us so long to become concerned? It's not really the case, because we've known electric fields have been dangerous for a long time since Galvani first discovered it. The question is, what are the levels we're dealing with? In other words, we've, we've known electric currents and electric fields are dangerous for a long time because we've used them in the electric chair. They're clearly detrimental to your health. At high levels, <laughs> yes. 
No, the problem is new is, is what are the possible effects of low-level, low long-term exposures? And that's the subject that hasn't been studied very well in the past. We're talking about fields that are from power lines that are something like a thousandth of that of the Earth's magnetic field. So these things are very weak. But power lines aren't the only source that oh, we're no. faced with. Oh, no. In fact, is there one, probably a minor source by comparison to the plumbing or ground loops that may be in the return from the unbalanced currents that flow through your house if you're using different power on different parts of the house you may be operating on different phases and if there's an unbalance between that those fields those currents may generate more fields than the power lines okay if we assume that some of these fields are harmful can you give us an idea of the reasons why that somehow they affect our bodily tissue presumably well first of all it's not at all clear that they are harmful and it's very hard to get cause and effect associated in this kind of of work now there is some evidence that maybe these things are doing something and they're the kind the one that is has scared people the most is the association between proximity to power lines and the incidence of childhood cancer and that study the first study was done by Nancy Wertheimer here in Boulder Ed Leeper and then a follow-up study I was involved in with Dave Savitz and Howard Wachtell and Jack Fuller how do you go students. about Okay, how do you go about investigating something as complex as this interaction? Well, there, there are two ways. The, the gross study that we just mentioned in the area was an epidemiological study, which is basically a statistical study. And it's very weak. It's a, like taking, it's a very weak study in terms of its ability to precisely identify cause and effect. We so, have an association, if there is one, between childhood cancer and say the proximity to power lines is not, not at all like the uh, Surgeon General's study of the incidence of cancer or lung cancer and, and smoking, which was a very strong correlation. Here we have a very weak correlation. Are they doing actual experiment, laboratory experiments between tissues and electrical? That's of course the other side of it. And the, the laboratory experiments are quite difficult to do. Uh, my favorite story in this and is the one of a you know somewhat different area in the microwave area where a psychologist exposed some rats to a waveguide and she put in a water dish and a feeder and turned on the power and the first thing the rats did was run and sit in their water dish. Now you can imagine what the psychological explanation of this might have been but an engineer sitting in the back of the room says you know the rat's tail is about oh two three inches long you know the dielectric constants about fifty and that uh, the rats, uh, that's a quarter wave antenna. The rat's got a hot spot at the base of the tail. Now, there's no reason in the world a psychologist should know that kind of antenna theory. And so this is the kind of problem that people have, is knowing enough over a broad enough range not to make stupid mistakes. And so it's very difficult. Yes, there is some laboratory evidence. There's some evidence at an intermediate level that in a certain cases in mouse tumors that... Uh, which were initiated with a four-ball ester that electric currents can serve as a cancer promoter. These levels are a thousand times higher than the levels that we associate with fields around a house from the wiring or from appliances or, or from uh, uh, power lines. Um, a recent Boulder Daily Camera article tells of a Boulder couple who have turned off their, their electric heater in their house. 
which was powered by a direct current source. It wasn't oscillating like most of the appliances, the source for most of our appliances are. And uh, the owner of the house says there has been evidence of, of leukemia uh, due to these DC sources. Are there work? Is there I work haven't seen that. I haven't seen anything in that area. I would be surprised at that because I'd be surprised if those fields are greatly different from the Earth's magnetic field. So that would surprise me. I, I won't say it's impossible, but yeah, I would be extremely surprised at that. A DC source has a very different characteristic. I would imagine there are different ways that it could affect body tissue. I would expect it to be quite different. Now, there is one recent discovery that's quite, quite interesting and intriguing. Uh, Joe Kirschwink at uh, Caltech has shown that there are magnetosomes in the brain of uh, humans. What are those? These are little particles of magnetite, a couple of hundred angstroms in diameter. And when coupled together in strings of micron long, they wind up being the navigation system for pigeons and bees and salmon and various things like that. Now, nobody knew, at least to my knowledge, knew that these existed for before about a year ago in humans, and nobody knows what their function is or how they or, wh or where, even where they're located. So that's an area of research where some new things might very well show up, and at this stage of the game, nobody knows what's going on. What are some of the presumed processes that might occur within human tissue from these time-varying fields? From the time-varying fields, you get induced currents and therefore you might wind up in changing the ion transport in the vicinity of membranes or across membranes or changing things like calcium. And we know that occur, uh, calcium transport across cell membranes, which is a second messenger and an important uh, part of this, uh, of the whole biological signaling process. That occurs at higher levels, uh, uh, the order of a thousand times the fields that of a few milligauss that we talk about in a house, or 10 to the minus 7 Tesla for people who are familiar with that notation. What are some of the processes that might occur in human tissue or other living tissue from the effect of magnetic or electric fields? It depends on what levels you're looking at. At high levels, of course, we get heating and shock and various things like that. At the low levels, or what I would call intermediate levels, you get effects on growth currents. In other words, there are naturally flowing currents in the body. And if you induce currents that are approximately the same size as these, it's not surprising that you interfere with the growth processes. Could you induce these and then levels the, from no, electric power yeah, lines? No, well, not normally. They're, they occur at some levels that are roughly a thousand times the levels we would expect from power lines and from uh, everything except very large appliances that are or like motors that you're right next to and I mean really right next to it, because the fields next to appliances fall off very rapidly, so you step back a foot or two and these fields are much, much smaller than they are if you're right next to them. How come when you go to a 7-Eleven, you see the sign out front that says, warning to those who wear pacemakers that there's a microwave oven in use? It's because the microwave can propagate and some of the very old pacemakers were not shielded to protect that, and so you can get from the modulated signals in the in the microwave oven, transmitted and coupled to some of the old pacemakers, and they can interfere with the, with the pacing circuit itself. The new ones, this is not the case. There have also been accusations that microwaves can possibly affect DNA. Yes, uh, I know about those experiments. Some of them were done at the University of Maryland. Uh, there have been some done down in Arizona. 
those uh, are quite special situations with regard to resonances and relatively high levels. One of the things you need to know is the body shields itself very well from most of these fields. So that the fields you get inside the body and the fields on the surface of the skin are quite different. In fact, is at the very low frequencies, it's only one part in a hundred million. Well, it sounds like most of the studies are inconclusive at this point. What would you tell the people who live on Grape Street under those big power lines at this point? And the question is, is it safe? Should I sell my house or not? And the answer is, is, is from my point of view, is that first of all, we, we can't answer the question whether it's safe or not. We don't know. On the other hand, would I sell my house? The answer is no. On the other hand, it depends an awful lot on your own psychological state. Is what kinds of risk are you willing to take? In general, people are willing to impose risks on themselves that they understand, which are much larger than the risks they will let somebody else impose on them, especially if they don't understand it. Something like, like Rocky Flats down the road. Uh, yeah, people don't want that, but they're perfectly willing to go skiing, where skiing may be much more dangerous, because you understand that, mm -hmm. or something you're familiar with, or the difference between air pollution from, say, coal, which is much higher than the radiation problem. We dump more radiation out of a coal-fired stack than we do out of a nuclear plant. So it's a lot of the things has to do with people's confidence in this, and relative risk is really a major point. We don't live in a risk-free world. It's a question of what risks are you willing to assume for what benefits under what circumstances. You can't make a statement that something is safe against all those things I haven't thought about yet. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Frank Barnes from the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at the University of Colorado. Glad to be with you. One more thing before we go. This show needs a name. We want you, the listeners, to name KGNU's new science show. Call the KGNU comment line with your name suggestions. The number is 447-9911 or write us care of KGNU, P.O. Box 885, Boulder, 80306. That's all for this edition of the Nameless KGNU Science Show. The program was produced by Sam Fuqua, Dave Atkins, Jeff Ory, Martin Smith, Michael Kiefer, and Alan Gordon. Our theme music was produced by Larry Morrison. Let us know what you thought of this show. We want your feedback, and if you want to participate, call the KGNU comment line 447-9911. That's 447-9911. For the KGNU Science Show, I'm Jeff Ory. And I'm David Atkins. Thanks for listening. <laughs>